out in Dallas East. We moved uh, six months ago, almost today, actually. And I've spoken for the other two regions a couple of times on Sunday. Uh, so this is my first time with this region on Sunday, but it's good to be here. I did teach the guys on midweek a couple times, and Todd wanted me to come and see how much better uh, this region looks with the women present. And uh, he is absolutely right, you know. Guys are guys, but women dress up the world. That's why God made them last. God saved, you know, the vegetable kingdom. I'm sure the last things that God made in the vegetable kingdom had to be onions and garlic. They're the best. Uh, And in the human realm, uh, no surprise that God created women last. After he looked at the man for a while, he said, you know, this boy needs some help. And so uh, he created woman. But it is good to be with all of you today and to be able to share a lesson that uh, I've been asked to share actually in the other two regions, and it's one that is near and dear to my heart on a subject uh, that has affected me tremendously in the last uh, 35 years, or 30, 30 years, 30 years. 35, I don't know. Anyway, I call it the essential step to uh, Christian maturity, and it's often the missing ingredient. In fact, I had a sermon about that, but this uh, lesson, the subject of it, is the reason that I became a part of the churches in this fellowship of churches. I was in another group. I was a minister. I actually went to a reunion yesterday. 50-year reunion of a school that I used to teach in training ministers. And so I saw guys that I hadn't seen for 40 years. They all got old. You know, (laughs) I'm sure they looked at me and said, Gordon who? But at any rate, uh, I used to be in this other fellowship of churches and changed primarily because of what I'm going to be talking to you about today. In 1981, I went to visit a church down in Gainesville, Florida, and they were doing some things in that church called the Crossroads Church that uh, were very intriguing. I went and spent a week, and I asked a lot of questions and hung around a lot of people, and uh, I got back home, and I preached a sermon in the, the church that I was in entitled, The Missing Ingredient. And I said, you know, I have found the missing ingredient. And I knew that those churches needed a lot of help because the majority of the churches that I'd been in, I would say that most of the work was done by a minority of the members. Most of the money was given by a minority of the members. And so that has to mean that the majority of the members just were not mature, really, in a spiritual way. And as I began to try to teach the things that I had learned, I got a lot of resistance. I was sort of shocked. Gee, to me it was kind of like I I got in a candy store without prices when I was a kid or something. And uh, I was so excited. But it dawned on me then as I began to try to lead people down a road that I think the Bible was trying to lead us down. uh, It dawned on me, you know, a lot of people became in their mind Christians uh, as fire insurance. They didn't want to go to hell when they died. And so they knew that they needed to do something there, and they didn't want to go to hell when they died. But the concept 
that becoming a Christian means that I am now representing Christ on this earth, doing what he would do if he were here. That concept was fairly absent in that church I was in and in most of the churches that I'd uh, ever been in. And so I start off today with the concept that getting you saved is not God's primary goal in your life. That simply is not it. Otherwise, you could have just been taken up when you got baptized, right? But God left you here because he wants you to represent him. But in order to do that, there has to be a Christian maturity that we're all growing in all of the time. Colossians 1, now rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. Most of us have a problem with that sentence. And I fell up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard of Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Not simply you in Christ getting saved, but Christ living in you. And he said, this is the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's God's goal. Uh, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So your maturity in Christ is the goal that God has in your life, the main agenda. And so it starts off with knowing Christ. I mean, it's all about Jesus. Uh, it's not about religion. It's not about just simply coming to church. It's not simply just avoiding sin. It is really about becoming absorbed in Christ in an amazing way so that he governs all parts of your life, always. Here are some verses. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, there's his goal. He got baptized a long time before this. But his goal was to gain Christ more and more. Philippians 1, for to me, to live is Christ, to die would be gain. Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, in other words, we couldn't really understand God until we saw him in the flesh. And so Jesus was the fullness of God in bodily form. And then he says, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is over the head over all authority and power. So you've been given fullness in Christ. That means that you represent Christ. Just like Jesus had to be flesh so that people could understand God, we are the ones that people have to look at to understand Jesus. That's a lot, right? That is a burden in one sense, but hopefully a welcome burden. 
because people need to see us and see something different enough to draw them to Christ. And so he goes on a lot of other verses in here. You died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where your minds are all the time. And you know, it's a, it's a funny thing, this aging business. Um, we went to our 50-year high school graduation reunion a few years ago. And uh, I wouldn't have recognized anyone. I'm glad everybody had a picture on <laughs> from the yearbook blown up. Because honestly, there were about two people I recognized. What happened to all these people? And we're going around staring at each other's pictures trying to figure out who is that dude inside there? Who is that? It was just a weird experience. That was one of those things I did once and I'm done. One and done. And I felt a lot the same yesterday, honestly. Seeing guys that I'd taught 40 years ago. Seeing teachers I had gone to school under 45 years ago. Uh, 45 years ago, I was a student in that school. And seeing the two teachers that impacted me most and how they look now and how they're doing now, I thought, gee, fellow, whatever you got to do, you better get on with it because uh, life goes by fast. But you know, I've had a lot of good friends die this year, a number, all of them younger than me. I looked through my sermon filing system one time, and I knew I'd preached a lot of, of sermons or a lot of funerals, uh, funeral sermons. So I, I looked through there to see, you know, what kind of people am I speaking over at a funeral? Do you know the majority were under 30? That was a long time ago, but I had done a lot of funerals by that time. None of us have a lease on life. So whatever we're doing now, wherever our hearts really are set, we may meet God exactly like we are today. Yeah. Those of you that are younger, I, I know you got a plan. Some of you uh, deceived people who are older got the same plan. You think, okay, whatever's going on now, I'm really busy, I'm really absorbed in all of this, I, I can't really do what I know I need to be doing for God, but I'm going to get it straightened out somewhere down the line before I die. No, you're going to die on a day about like today. You're going to be about like you are today. So my question is, are we where we need to be? Where we want to be in meeting God? You see, God is asking us, though, to go a step, I think, beyond just seeking Him. He, he wants us to represent Him. He wants to, us to seek Him in a way that we can then represent Him. Years ago, I wrote a book entitled simply, simply Discipling. And uh, uh, I, we, we couldn't figure out what to call it. Tom Jones, uh, Bethany's dad, was the editor of DPI at the time. And I'd written this long book, and we're trying to figure out what, what are we going to call it. And finally, Tom said, well, we can't think of anything too fancy here, so why don't we just call it Discipling? I said, good, that sounds good to me. Uh, I was creative enough to write it, but I can't figure out a title. So anyway, that, that'll do good. But then he added what I think was an ingenious subtitle. 
And it is God's plan to train and transform his people. You see, transform has to do with our character of being like Jesus, our hearts. And training has to do with his mission, us being trained to do that effectively. Uh, I don't know about you. I get around and Todd and Patty, and they talk about all the people that they are trying to influence for Christ. It's pretty staggering how many non-Christians they get with and try to influence us, but that is a result of being trained to do it. And you've got to have a transformed character to do it, to imitate him in every way. Uh, follow my example, Paul said, as I follow the example of Christ. And he didn't put an asterisk on it. He didn't say, well, you know, just imitate the Jesus part of me. He had enough of Jesus in him, and he was enough in Jesus that he said, just imitate me, and you'll be doing well. No asterisk on that. We put the asterisk on it because we're uncomfortable with what he said. He wasn't. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Romans 8, 28, we love that verse, but sometimes we don't even see the next verse. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? He goes on and tells us, because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And so all the things in your life that God takes and works with and works through and works in and works in spite of, all the things that God is working together in your life are designed to make you more like Jesus. Yeah, I was praying in this prayer walk recently, a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking about the things in my life that aren't going the way that I wish they would go. And I had this little question that pops up in my head when problems come, uh, at least from time to time. The question is, why me? And then I got thinking, wait a minute, why not me? If God is trying to work in my life and change me, why not me? I need to look at why that's in my life. Why has God allowed this? What is it that God wants to use this to do in my life to make me more like his son and more effective for his son? Um, so that's quite a good verse. Now, the essential step to accomplish this maturing so that you can represent Jesus, how's he going about it? Well, we know the Great Commission, right? Jesus said, all authority is given to me. Go make disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Two parts to the Great Commission. The initial part, getting you saved, and then the part about maturing you so that you're obeying everything that Jesus commanded because you're imitating him, you're representing him. And so um, you got two parts of the Great Commission. Let me ask you this. Now, I think the first part is the easiest part. That's like getting born, reborn. But the growing up, you know, that's the challenging part. It's just like having children. I'm told there's a lot of pain associated with the initial part of that process. Uh, 
I, I, I've been around it enough to know that, you know, there are usually loud cries and pain and things going on as you give birth, women. And yet, uh, what happens from that point forward to me is the bigger challenge. I have gr- five grandchildren, the oldest about to turn 17. Uh, I watch my kids raising my grandkids, and I'm thinking, okay, you need to pay. Uh, <laughs> I had to put up with you, now you got to put up with them, right? But that, that is the harder part of the process. Now, question. When you're talking about helping someone get right with God, you're teaching them the basics in order to baptize them into Christ. How is that that best done? In a group like this? Or sitting down in somebody's living room or at their coffee table and and talking and individually uh, studying with them and customizing it to their needs? That's how you do it, right? You choose that every time. And that's the easy part. The hard part, helping people grow up and mature and stay strong and get stronger in Christ. If the easy part is best done on an individualized basis, then how about that second part? You really think we can do that in here? God never intended that. He never intended that. He intended it be done Uh, by people in your life in a private way doing this thing that we call discipling. I was talking to somebody the other day who said, well, you know, some people did the discipling thing wrong, and I just don't like that term. Okay, well, how about the term marriage? How do you like that one? You agree with me that a lot of people have really messed that one up? Some of you? We still use the term. How about parenting? You think anybody's ever messed up with that one? A better question is, has anybody ever done it right? But anyway, uh, it's not the term that's bad. Sometimes it's the implementation of it, how we did it. So if you want to use another term, use another term. I'm okay with it. Mentor, mentoring. I don't care what term you use. I'm just saying. That if we're going to be mature in Christ, we have to have people in our lives individually helping us grow and change. Think about those terms of marriage and parenting. How much does the Bible really have to say about those? Not much. There are a few key passages. They're great passages. They have some very good principles in them. But I can rattle them off in a very short time, obviously. God intended that we be in each other's lives helping us with marriage, helping us with parenting, helping us with a broad variety of subjects. That's how we learn to do it. We're family, and God designed us to function in that way. Uh, The concept of discipling, I've traveled a lot, uh, as has been said, I've been around to a lot of churches. I've asked, okay, where is the concept of discipling? Where is that in your church? And without exception, all over the world, to the places I've traveled to, which is a lot of the world, uh, people have said, you know, we think the concept is biblical and right and needed. Question two, are you really doing it consistently 
as a church? And you know, the answer to that one is normally no. I was, uh, last fall, Teresa and I were back in Boston. We lived there for uh, 16 years. I served in a lot of roles there. I was an elder there for a long time, uh, as well as a teacher and evangelist, etc. But at any rate, they wanted me to come back and do some teaching on this subject. Uh, there was a New England or a Northeast uh, elders and elders in training group that met, and uh, I taught about five lessons at that one weekend, and uh, they wanted me to teach on the concept of discipling. So one of the times, I just said, okay, let's talk. It wasn't a big group, about like one of these uh, rows here. And so I just said, what, what are we doing? Tell me what you're doing in your church. These are the leaders. Tell me what you're doing in your church. And there was no one that said the large majority of our church is consistently practicing discipling. Not a one. And that's been pretty consistent everywhere that I've been. That's my sense of the Dallas church. Uh, from what I can tell in talking to people and asking questions, we all think it's the right thing, but are we doing it on a consistent, planned basis? And the answer generally has been no. I've taught so many lessons on this. I said at least 100, probably more than that. So I'm going to close. This is my last slide. I'm going to close with a few examples. Uh, the story of a few marriages. I remember when I was preaching for what I call a mainline church uh, in the Dallas area a number of years ago, we had a couple that actually we were pretty good friends with, me especially with the guy. He was a deacon in that church. Uh, we had gone fishing together on Lake Levon, I think uh, a few times, definitely gone water skiing, and then he gave me this really great paper flex slalom ski. I put some real soft fittings on and all of that and used it a long time, but knew, knew the couple pretty well, and he was a deacon in the church. Somebody said, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? I won't use their names. And I said, no, I hear what about them? He says, well, they're getting divorced. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I'm the minister in this church. Uh, I'm a friend of this guy. He's a deacon in the church, and I've heard nothing about it, and they're already split up. Something is wrong with that picture. Then at another guy, his wife left him. He didn't want it at all, but she left him. He was a young guy. He came to my house several times and just poured his guts out and just needed help. He was hurting terribly. I thought to myself, you know, in this church, when people really get open, it's either at a death or a divorce. That's when we get real. The rest of the time we're putting on that face uh, that what, Thomas, right? Thomas? I probably knew him when he was a little bitty guy back in Rhode Island, but anyway. Um, uh, that, that face that we put on, how you doing? Fine. Everybody's fine. Arms distance. Not honest. Not real. Not vulnerable. And that's the way, you know, most of the people in that church where I, I went to the church that one of my professors was teaching in or preaching in. And uh, he asked me to speak one day, and so I taught about this subject because I was just learning about it. 
And he was pretty sturdy. He was an older guy. I was young back then. Uh, he was young, younger than I am right now. But anyway, he seemed old. You know what I mean. Uh, but anyway, he got up afterwards, and he says, I think Gordon really hit it. He said, I think what we're doing is we have these shells on, these facades, and we come to church, bump shells, and go home. That's a pretty good way to put it. A lot of people do that. But you see, the thing that got me on that trip to Gainesville, Florida, in 1981, is I met a guy there, a professor that had moved there for a year to kind of study out the church, actually, because his daughter had moved there and become a part of the church, and he had heard a lot of things about it that weren't positive. So he moved there for a year, and he wrote a book. And he gave me a copy of the book. It was long. It was in manuscript form. We went to some copying machine or whatever, and he gave me this stack of papers really thick. Later came out in uh, book form. But I read the book on the way back to my home church in Washington State, and I started reading the book. And uh, I don't remember everything he said about the church and the criticisms and all that. It's good stuff, I'm sure. But I remember one thing he said about discipling. He said, discipling is God's way of helping you deal with sin at the temptation level before it comes in and destroys your life. Do you see what had just happened in my family? Is that I had two first cousins. I didn't have a sister until I was 10. After mom and dad saw me, they gave up for 10 years uh, before my, <coughs> my sis was born. So I, I was kind of like an only child all those years, but I had two first cousins, girls, one slightly older than me, one slightly younger, and they were like my sisters. And so they grew up and got married, and the oldest one married this guy that was about as spiritual as this plastic here. And uh, they had a pretty rough go of it. But finally, like me, I was a mess early on, a real mess, but this preacher guy liked to fish and got me fishing with him, and it's a long story and a really good story, and He's dead, and I cry, and, you know. But uh, the same thing happened to my cousin's husband. This preacher guy got hold of him. I don't know if they're golfing or fishing or what they're doing, but somehow this guy changed radically. And the whole family was rejoicing. My uncle had been an elder in, in, in this church, uh, maybe a couple of different ones, and the whole family was kind of in it together. And uh, we saw my cousin's husband change. We were so grateful. And life was good. Family was good. But then the uh, brother-in-laws were working together and making good money, and the wives weren't working uh, outside the home. I know you work in the home. But anyway, uh, this cousin, the older one, she started volunteering at a Christian school. And it's a, it was associated with the church that the Duck Dynasty boys are in right now in West Monroe, Louisiana. That's where my family went to church. Some of them still do, the other sisters. But the older one started volunteering at a Christian school, ended up getting attracted to the principal. Both of them members in that congregation got attracted to this principal guy. They started having an affair 
And when it all came out, their spouses, including my my cousin's husband, who would have probably shot someone earlier than this, but he had become spiritual, and they were begging their mates, let's don't divorce. But they wouldn't listen, and they did divorce. And I think the church uh, dealt with them in a withdrawal of fellowship. I haven't seen uh, my cousin since that time. But uh, at any rate, the things that happened in their family were horrendous. And the story goes on in a horrendous way, even today. I could give you some details about their children, but Charles will help. So I read that book on the way home from Florida, 1981, May. Hmm, no, May. I was reading that book, and for three days, I did not sleep, literally. I couldn't go to sleep because I thought of all the people. And I said, if my cousin had just been in a church that practiced the Sabbath, and when she started getting attracted, hey, we're human beings here. Uh, when she started get attra- getting attracted to this guy, if she could have talked to someone and gotten help, the devastation that came into our family would never have come. And I couldn't sleep for thinking of all of the names. You see, discipling keeps us from messing up, and we really need it. But on the positive side, it helps us become more like Jesus. It helps us change in a positive way. So the last story is this one. It's mine. Teresa and I moved to Boston in 1987, last day or two in a blizzard, and we'd been living in beautiful, sunny San Diego. And we moved to Boston uh, about the beginning of 1988. We'd been married 23 years, about to celebrate our 23rd anniversary then. We just celebrated our 50th back in January. But at any rate, we we moved in, and uh, I don't transition well. Uh, there's something about transitions like that I don't do well. I really didn't do well moving from San Diego to a blizzard in Boston. <laughs> Beautiful home on the back of a mountain to apart- an apartment in the snow. That, you know. And I wasn't doing well, and, of course, it was all my wife's fault, right? <laughs> that, that's what I was so deceived about. It, it was all her fault. So anyway, they assigned this couple... Wyndham and Jeannie Shaw, he's an elder there now, but they assigned them to disciple us. Wyndham's 10 years younger than I am. And back in those days, honestly, he was sort of intimidated by me because I was speaking on a lot of programs and he was seeing me up, you know, doing my thing. And so he had this view of me, he had me on a pedestal, I guess, or something uh, that got broken soon, but... um, (laughs) Anyway, he's nervous about, what am I going to do with this guy? So we go over to their house for our very first discipling time, just as they were sending their kids out the door to go to school. They were all little guys then. And so uh, we're in their house, hardly knew them. And Wyndham said, well, how are you guys doing today? You know, just a way to break the ice. I said, you really want to know? He's kind of shocked, you know. He said, oh, yeah. And I said, I would like to choke this little woman right now. 
And the, and the sad part is I, I was serious. And he had a look on his face. I'd give $1,000 right now if I could have a picture at that moment of his face. It was a strange combination of absolute shock and absolute relief. He was shocked that I said it, and that's where we were. But he was so relieved, he's thinking, oh, good, I know what to do with him now. <laughs> and they did. They got together with us time after time after time for weeks. I don't know how long it took. They went all the way back to our dating days. We'd known each other since we were 12. Started dating as seniors in high school. I mean, we, and dated four years before we got married. Went back and dug all kinds of stuff out. All the attitudes, all the hurts, all the unresolved things. Got it all out. And we had one of the most amazing changes in America. Ever, ever seen. It was a miracle. It was all because of this thing called discipleship. So when I talk about discipling, I'm very serious about it. And I've been preaching about it and writing about it for a lot of years because I know what happens without it. I've seen the worst part of that. And I know what happens with it. I've seen the best part of that. In a new edition of a book that just came out, I just got a copy a couple of weeks ago. But I changed the dedication page. It had been to grandkids, and I've done enough of those. So I changed it to the Boston Church of Christ. But I talked about all the help that I got while I was there. And I said, but hundreds of people influenced me for good spiritually. But I said, the two names that come out, Raymond Shaw and Tom Price. No one helped me more than those guys to want to be like Jesus and to be trying to be like Jesus. It doesn't get easier as you get older. Some of you say, wow, you know, when I get Gordon's age, I'll have it all down. I'll be so spiritual it won't even be a struggle. No, no. You've got that reversed, just like you had a lot of other things reversed. It gets harder as you get older. I need people in my life. I talk to people. I tell them what's going on because life isn't easy, and I'm trying to be like Jesus and trying to represent him. So when I talk about discipling, it is near and dear to my heart, and I beg you to be involved in it in the way that you know, most of us, that it can work, it should work, Okay? Is that a deal? We're good on that? Okay, I'll shut up and sit down.